How many of you are familiar with the voice of the martyrs? Just put your hands up. Voice of the martyrs? Okay, good. It's an organization that highlights the plight of the persecuted church around the world. Thank you, Josh. Man bringing sugar for my blood. Their October 2014 newsletter contained the following article. And I quote, Habila Adamu and his family were awakened by the sound of someone pounding on their front door of their simple home in northern Nigeria. It was 11 p.m., well past the hour for a neighborly visit, so the only reason for someone to be at the door was an emergency, or worse, an attack on their village. The pounding on the door was followed by the sound of men yelling for Habila to come out with his family. Habila rushed to get dressed. When he entered the front room with his wife Vivian and their young son close behind, he faced intruders wearing robes and masks. One was armed with an AK-47. Habila said a short prayer to the Lord after announcing that they were there to do the work of Allah. The men began to question Habila. They asked him his name, his profession, whether he was a policeman or in the military, and whether he was a Christian or a Muslim. I'm a Christian, he replied. Vivian was terrified, knowing the men were members of Boko Haram. The intruders told Habila that they were giving him the opportunity to live and live a better life if he would only become a Muslim and say the Shahada. It's an Islamic profession of faith that includes there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. They even asked him to join them as a member of Boko Haram. All the while, Habila was prepared to die. I am a Christian and I will always remain a Christian, he replied. Even to death. The video at the end of that article contains the rest of the story. Habila was shot in the face, massively disfigured, and he lived to tell about it. I wonder what you think of guys like Habila. I hope you know he's not alone. There are thousands of Christians around the world right now, especially in areas dominated by ISIS or Boko Haram, that are being persecuted, tortured, raped, and murdered on account of their faith. And earlier this year, CBS News reported that in Iraq alone, get this, 125,000 Christians have been forced to leave their homeland. Think about that. What would happen if 125,000 people in Richmond just left? What would cause someone to make that kind of choice? What would cause someone to be willing to die on account of their religious belief or leave their homeland in order to remain a Christian? I think it's worth asking, why not just say the Shahada 
and keep your life and your house. Well, friend, it's because Christianity isn't just a religious affiliation. It's not a census checkbox. It's not a mere belief structure, something you do on Sunday, or a badge of cultural Republican conservatism. If you are a Christian, you know what that means? It's who you are. That's because Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. New creation. When Jesus saves you, he doesn't give you a t-shirt and a list of rules to follow. He remakes you from the inside out so that it's not just what you believe that changes or how you act that changes. It's who you are that changes. There's an identity change that goes on when you become a Christian. And that is why Habila couldn't deny the faith. That's why. Because for him, it wasn't a list of rules, it was his identity. It's what defined the man. And the Bible teaches us over and over again, all throughout Scripture, that that is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus in an intimately personal and relational kind of way. It's like the way that a a son follows his father. Or a young child follows an older child, if you're familiar with those scenarios, when you follow someone in that intimate relational kind of way, who they are becomes part of who you are. Their identity, in a sense, becomes your identity. And I would argue that the same is true of followers of Christ. If you're a Christian, the people around you should be able to perceive His identity in your identity. The way you choose to live should confront them with the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for you in the gospel. The way you live your life should confront people with the identity of Christ. And I bring this up because from the very beginning of Mark's gospel, and again in chapter 14, we've been confronted by Mark with two identity questions. First, who is Jesus? What's Jesus' identity? And second, what does it mean to follow him? What's what's our identity as followers? And those two questions come to a head in this part of Mark 14, where Mark kind of weaves two different accounts together. You've got identity affirmed on the part of Jesus. You have identity denied on the part of Peter. And know this up front. I'm going to say this now so it doesn't get lost later in the sermon. The point of this message is not be true to yourself. In the sense that the world says that. The divinely intended effect of these words, in one sense, is to challenge us, if you're a Christian, to be true to yourself. But to this degree, that you confess the identity of Christ through the conduct of your life. That's the goal. The goal of this part of Mark 14 is that you and I would be exhorted, encouraged, admonished to confess the identity of Christ through the conduct of our life. So let's first consider the question 
of Jesus' identity. I want us to look at what do these verses affirm about Jesus, okay? Number one, things that are affirmed in here about Jesus, his identity. Jesus is a righteous man. Look at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to what? To put him to death. That's where you've got to remember that for the last three years, Jesus had been engaged in public ministry. So he's teaching people, he's preaching the word, he's healing the sick, he's feeding the hungry, he's, he's raising the dead. Some people loved him, some people hated him. One of the groups that, that hated him was the religious powers that be. Namely, the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Those groups together were known as the Sanhedrin, the religious council, which was pretty much the who's who list of prominent men in Jerusalem. And Jesus was a threat to their authority. They knew it. They felt it. Jesus exposed their hypocrisy. Jesus repeatedly offended their religious pride by rebuking them for thinking that they could merit God's acceptance and love through their good works. Think back to the parable of the tenants in Mark 12, where the vineyard symbolizes the nation of Israel, and Jesus indicts the Sanhedrin with these words, What will the owner of the vineyard do? Referring to God. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That, that didn't go over very well. <laughs> they weren't fond of those words. They weren't asked Jesus to sign book copies of parables like that. Because they knew he was talking about them. And so it's no surprise in the beginning of Mark 14 we read this. The chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And when Judas agreed to betray the Lord, they were all too happy. Remember I said the thing that's being affirmed here is that Jesus, first thing, is a righteous man. So where where do we see that? Well, consider this. Even his fiercest enemies could not find a reason to condemn him when they finally had a chance to bring him to trial. Did you notice that? Look, Look back at verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but what? They found some. A lot. They found none. They found none. Now you realize, I hope, this wasn't a fair trial. This was a verdict in search of evidence. This was a kangaroo court. They'd already decided to kill Jesus And now they just needed a publicly legit reason to do that. But don't move quickly past the fact that they couldn't find one. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Think about this. Three years of public ministry. Countless hours of teaching and debate. Translation, arguing. (laughs) Angry crowds, ignorant disciples, no food, no shelter. If Jesus' life had a stress knob, it was kind of on, you know, 9.9 the whole time. That was his life. That was his experience. And you'd think, surely, 
with that kind of life, you'd sin at least once. Surely in a moment of weakness, you would blurt out something spiteful. People treat you like a jerk for three years. I mean, you know, just saying, no one's perfect. You're going to snap at some point. Even if it's on the inside, you know, outside, I'm a politician, smiles. But you know, inside, you're going you're gonna to be angry. You're going to sin. You're going you're gonna to do something wrong. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Praise God for that. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. John 8.29 And he who sent me, Jesus says, is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You can't say that. I can't say that. And Jesus was not just a good man. He was a perfectly righteous man. Not a single charge could be leveled against him. They even tried to bring false witnesses. This verdict and search of evidence. But what happened? The false witnesses didn't agree. Uh Uh-oh. Forgot about that. Yeah, because in Jewish judicial proceedings, you had to have at least two or three witnesses agreeing in order to confirm a charge. (coughs) They couldn't even get that on the Lord. Mark records that for a reason, church. It's to remind us. Because he says it once in verse 56, again in verse 59. Jesus was absolutely innocent. And he was the only absolutely innocent man who ever lived. And that is good news for you and me for two reasons. Reason number one, if Jesus had the slightest trace of sin for which he was guilty, he would have had to die for his own sin. Reason number two, because he earned a spotless righteousness through his perfectly obedient life, He has something to give you, Christian. Namely, the perfect righteousness of God. Praise God for the active obedience of Christ. As one man said, no hope without it. Jesus is a righteous man. First thing, he affirms about his identity. And what's amazing is, he hasn't even opened his mouth. Second thing, Jesus is a glorious king. Look at verse 60. A righteous man, a glorious king. Verse 60. After all the witnesses that have been exposed as false were pushed to the side, the high priest himself finally stands up and asks the decisive question. Look at this. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And then he brought out the big gun. Look at this question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That is the moment of truth. That, church, is the question we have been waiting 14 chapters for Jesus to answer. We've had plenty of evidence in the affirmative. He's healed people. He's 
raised folks from the dead. And people around Jesus, including Peter in Mark 8, have answered in the affirmative, who are you? You are the Christ, but Jesus has yet to directly answer that question. So imagine the tension. Imagine the stillness. You've got a council of 70 men, and the high priest finally asks the one thing they have all been dying to hear Jesus answer. I mean, just imagine the tension. It's loud and crazy, false witnesses. Quiet. Did he just ask that question? Yeah. And it wasn't an innocent question. It was a loaded question. Loaded question. Because to claim to be the Christ, the Son of God, was to claim to be the Messiah, the servant of the Lord that the Jewish people had been waiting for for thousands of years. And the Messiah wasn't just a superman. He was a divine messenger who would bring to pass the rule and reign of Yahweh on the earth. That had massive nationalistic and political implications in the mind of Jesus' hearers. And yet to all of them, listening, leaning forward, one thing was clear. There was no way that a man who had been arrested and was now sitting under judgment by other men, could be the Messiah. Because who's the Messiah? He's the one who comes to judge. The very fact that Jesus had been arrested and was sitting under judgment proved that one thing was clear. If anybody in this geographic locale is not the Messiah, it's not the dude in the chair. He can't claim to be that. He's helpless. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Verse 62, Jesus said, praise God he did, I am. I am, and you will see the Son of Man, look at this, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus doesn't just say, are you the Christ, Son of the Blessed? Yeah. No. He says, yes, and then he says, and let me tell you for your sake what that yes means. So first, he identifies himself as the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Let's think about that. That's from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, this is David speaking, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What's Jesus saying? A Sanhedrin, you like to think you are the judge. You're wrong. <laughs> you are not. One day, all of you are going to answer to me. And I am waiting until the Father I trust brings all of my enemies under my feet. That's the first thing he affirmed. His second thing, second thing, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's from Daniel 7, where Daniel prophesies, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given Look, dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. Amen. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you realize that is why we live in a moral universe? Morals aren't, we don't live in a moral universe because morals are a tool for the survival of the fittest. We live in a moral universe because this universe was created by a moral God who deserves to be worshipped. The Sanhedrin anticipated the Messiah, the Christ, as, as this nationalistic deliverer who would restore the glory of the nation of Israel. And Jesus basically says by quoting Daniel 7, guys, listen, not so fast. I'm not just the king of your little nation. Guess what? I'm the king of the universe. Thing one, I'm your judge. Thing two, I'm also your king and the king of all the people in this entire world that you will never meet because I have made all of them and I rule over all of them. Talk about back at you. Church, I want to encourage you. That one sentence in Mark 14.62 should banish all your small thoughts about Jesus. Just banish them. Banish them. Because Jesus isn't a nice guy looking for fans. Okay? He's not a religious figure among other bobbleheads. He's not a champion for a humanitarian cause. He is your Lord. He is your God. He is your King. And one day, everyone in this room is going to give an account to him for every word we have spoken, every thought that's crossed our minds, and every deed we have ever committed. Who is Jesus? A righteous man, a glorious king, and finally, last thing affirmed about him, is a suffering servant. Look at verse 64. 64. You've heard his blasphemy, Hybris says. What is your decision? I was studying blasphemy this week. I, that's not a term I'm familiar with. I don't know if anybody's ever come up to you and said, you blasphemed. <laughs> Did you hear that guy blasphemed? It I just hasn't happened to me. <laughs> and William Lane, Bible scholar, says that in Jesus' day to blaspheme God, listen to this, was to dishonor him by diminishing his majesty or by depriving him of rights to which he was entitled. That's what it meant to blaspheme. And for an arrested man to claim to be God was to deprive the one true God of the glory and honor that they believed he deserved. That was all they needed to hear. Verse 64, they all condemned him as deserving death. A suffering servant. But here's a question for you. In the very moment where Jesus appears most weak and most helpless, who's in charge? I think at first glance it appears to be the Sanhedrin. I know power was certainly formidable, but, but who's in charge? Whose words 
are moving the entire proceeding to its divinely appointed end. Jesus' work. Do you realize that? He wasn't just waiting for the day of judgment to prove he was in charge. It was his very words, his very affirmation of his identity that were moving the proceedings exactly where a sovereign God wanted them to go. Because until he boldly affirmed his identity, the Sanhedrin couldn't do what they wanted to do. So note well, friends, note well, even the fiercest and most malicious desires of sinful men are always subject to the sovereign rule of God. Always. And I wonder how many of you have, have suffered under horrible acts of injustice. Some of you, because I know you, have been physically abused. Okay, some of you have been sexually abused. Some of you have been discriminated against because of the color of your skin or been betrayed by someone you thought you could trust. And the pain may diminish with time, but I know those scars never go away. And if that's you, hear this from the Lord this morning. Jesus is familiar with your suffering. He's familiar. Do I know why a sovereign Lord would allow you to experience the injustice you have? No. I'm asking why with you. But I know this, friend. The reason is not because God is unfamiliar with your suffering or unfamiliar with injustice or unconcerned or removed from your pain. I don't know why, but I know it's not because of those things. Because he suffered cosmic injustice and he could have ended it with a word. Right? So why not end cosmic injustice when it lies within your power to do so? When you are the God who is keeping the hearts beating of those men, when you, when you are the God who made the mouth that's spitting at you and the God who made the hands that are beating you, and you could just say, done, and they go away and they're gone. Why wouldn't you do that? For the reason Jesus chose to suffer is not because he deserved it. It's because you deserved it. And I deserved it. And Jesus came to willingly suffer and die in our place for our sins. That's why he allowed himself to suffer. He's a righteous man. He's a glorious king. He's a suffering servant. That's the three-part answer Mark gives to who is Jesus. All of that Jesus affirms about his identity. Now, Let's briefly turn our attention to the last part of the chapter. We don't see an identity affirmed. We see an identity denied. Identity denied. Enter Peter. 
It's interesting, Mark tells us that, suggests that both Jesus' affirmation of his identity and Peter's denial of his identity happened concurrently. Because you notice the beginning of the passage, verse 53, 54, Mark refers to Peter. Then he switches to Jesus. He comes back to Peter. It's sandwiched. That's to point out that they're basically happening at the same time. And when we think of Peter's denial, I think we often go to moments like the one Habila Adamu faced in Nigeria. We, we think like that. And church, there's a real sense, there's a real sense in which every Christian should be ready to respond like Habila if you or I are ever faced with that situation. But, can we please be honest about this? I doubt that in our lifetime, many of us are going to experience that kind of persecution in this country. I do. So does that mean we don't have a lot to learn from Peter's denial? I don't think so. Because our challenge, though it's more subtle than Habila's, is no less serious. And I think as we look at Peter's denial here, it doesn't take long to see yourself in the mirror. So, so notice this first. Verse 54. Peter was a reluctant follower. Notice that. Jesus is led to the high priest. The Sanhedrin gathers around him. And Mark writes, And Peter followed him, what? At a distance. Think about that. I mean, I think the reason for the distance, it doesn't take rocket science to figure that out, right? Peter is afraid for his life. And early in verse 50, he joins all the other disciples in, in fleeing the scene of Jesus' arrest. So first he flees, but now he's following, but his following is at a distance. So he doesn't want to completely deny the Lord. He doesn't want to completely turn away from following, but, but he's a reluctant follower. He's not all in because he's afraid of losing something that is more precious to him than Jesus. You get that? I wonder what that thing is for you. What are you afraid of losing that's more precious to you than Jesus? It might not be your physical life. It might not be your physical life, but is there anything in your life that you, friend, are reluctant to give up, lay down, or sacrifice for the sake of following Jesus? Okay, Maybe it's your time. You, you know there are ways that God has called you to serve your family or engage your neighbors in conversation, but you're selfish. You don't want to do it. You want to do what you want to do when you want to do it. Maybe it's your money. You know, you, you keep telling yourself that, well, when the bills get paid and I got a little extra in the bank, well, then I'll give to the work of the ministry in the church and, and then I'll be generous to my brothers and sisters in need. But, you know, first. Is it your time? Is it your money? Maybe it's your sexuality or your job or your, your relationship with a non-Christian that you know is, is pulling you away from God. For Peter, it was his physical life, 
But what is it for you? What, what are you saying right now if you're honest before God? Where, where are you saying, Lord, I'll give you everything but that? We do that. We do that. And that's dangerous because to reluctantly follow Jesus, to hold back from all in with Jesus, is to put yourself at risk of not just remaining a reluctant follower, but becoming, second, a faithless follower. Faithless follower. That's the second thing we see about Peter. And Peter denies three times that he's a follower of Jesus. And the last time he says it so strongly, he says, God, curse me if this isn't true. Look at verse 71. What's he say? Notice this phrase. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know, notice this well, this man of whom you speak. Think about that. It's not hard to recognize that Peter is flat out denying his identity as a follower of Jesus. But notice what else is happening here, church. Peter isn't just denying his identity. He's denying Jesus' identity. I do not know who. Who who is he? This man of whom you speak. What happened, Peter, Mark 8, to you were the Christ? How did Christ become this man of whom you speak? Well, I'll tell you, in that moment, the servant girl and the bystanders became Peter's functional God. They did. Their their opinion, their evaluation, their assessment of him mattered most. And when other people are God, guess who ceases to be God? The Lord. The Lord. It's called the fear of man. And so the, the one that Peter earlier identified as the Christ is now nothing more than this This man of whom you speak. So church, think of it this way. This is the point. If you're a follower of Christ, then every word you speak, every action you take, it isn't just affirming or denying who you are. All your words, all your actions are always affirming or denying who Jesus is. That's important to see. So think of it this way. If Jesus is a righteous man, what kind of actions on our part affirm that identity? Every choice to forsake all confidence in our own good works and to lean wholly and completely on the perfect blood of our Savior to be made right with God. That's the choice that affirms his identity. What denies his identity as a righteous man? Your attempts to earn God's love or acceptance by proving your own righteousness. If Jesus is a glorious king, what what kind of actions functionally deny that identity? Well, anything we do where we choose what we think is okay instead of submitting to what Jesus says is okay. That denies that he's a glorious king and sets us up as king. What, What kind of actions affirm his identity as a glorious king? Every choice we make to surrender our thoughts our speech, our time, our sexuality, to his will as he's revealed it in the Bible. All those actions affirm Jesus' identity as a king. Or think about this. If Jesus is a suffering servant, 
What kind of actions functionally deny that identity? Well, anything we do to try and get even with people who treat us unjustly. Well, how does that functionally deny Jesus' identity as a suffering servant? Well, here's how, because we're basically saying when we go tit for tat that God doesn't see my pain. God isn't familiar with my suffering. Therefore, God cannot be entrusted to vindicate and defend me. I have to take matters into my own hands. That's what we're doing when we go tit for tat. We're not just being a jerk. You're denying the identity of Christ as a suffering servant. What kind of actions affirm that he's a suffering servant? Every choice you make to love your enemies and do good to those who hurt you. That affirms his identity. So so what's the bottom line here? Whether or not you will deny Christ is not tested at gunpoint. It's not. It's tested every day of your life when you choose whether or not your actions will confess the identity of Jesus. Okay, so think of it this way. People should be able to construct a faithful true picture of who Jesus is by the way you live your life. In a sense, they should be able to read backwards from your life, your words, your thoughts, your actions, and see him. That's the test. That's where we choose whether or not we'll deny the Lord or whether or not we will functionally confess a lie about him. And that is how Peter's failure, his faithlessness, warns and challenges us, church, to consider every morning, are my actions today going to reflect the truth about who he is and what he's done for me? Or am I going to deny that? You've got a Peter moment coming tomorrow. Jesus affirms his identity. Peter denies his identity. Let me conclude with this. Praise God, that wasn't the end of the line for Peter. (laughs) Wasn't the end of the line. Peter was a reluctant follower, a faithless follower. But here's the last thing I want you to see about Peter before we wrap up. Peter was a chosen follower. He was reluctant, he was faithless, but he was also chosen. So Mark 14 concludes with this. Peter runs out of the house weeping. Why is he weeping? Well, because he's ashamed, because he's filled with remorse. What is that? That's godly sorrow. I mean, do you realize Judas didn't get that? The fact that Peter was weeping over what he had done, how he had denied the Lord, that was Jesus' first gift to Peter. It was the gift of conviction. That's a gift. Friend, friend, if as I'm speaking, you're hearing that question, are the choices I'm making in life functionally affirming or denying who Jesus is? And you're thinking, I'm doing some stuff that denies who he is. That right now is a gift from God. Same gift God gave Peter. But, but notice, that's not the only gift Peter got. Because in Mark 16, verses 6 through 7, something else happens. Jesus is resurrected. These two ladies come to the tomb looking for him, and an angel says this. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter. That he's going before you to Galilee. Why would Jesus say, go and tell his disciples, he's not here. 
Oh, and tell Peter. Because the Lord wanted Peter to know that though you were faithless, my son, I'm going to remain faithful. Though you were reluctant, my son, my love for you is not abated. Though you were faithless, my son, I have not stopped pursuing you and chasing after you. And even as you're denying who I am, I am running down after you with the gifted conviction to help you to turn and learn what it means to follow me. He was reluctant. He was faithless. He was chosen. Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Friend, I pray that today you would choose to confess the identity of Christ through the conduct of your life. That is the call of Mark 14, to live in such a way that your actions this week affirm who Jesus is and what he's done for you. But know this, at some point, you are going to fail. And I'm going to be right there with you. And I want to remind you You need to remember when you do fail that if you're a Christian, you are in Christ, which means his identity, right? In a real sense, is your identity. Which means God the Father can no more disown you than he could disown his very own son. Gary, if you and the band would come on up. I've asked Gary if we can sing this hymn. I want to read for you the first couple lines. Karina, let's go ahead and put that up if you don't mind. We can look at that together. The first verse. Church, know this. When you fear your faith will fail, Christ will hold you fast. that amazing? Wow. When the tempter would prevail on you, Christ will hold you fast. You will never keep your hold through life's fearful path. Your love will often be cold. And so he's got to hold you fast. This week, confess the identity of Christ through the conduct of your life. But know this, your hope to do so is that Jesus Christ is clinging to you and he is not going to